0: Should we so quickly pass over the description of the couple in the garden having been naked and unashamed and then hiding themselves? Or is mercy messy? Hello, this is Todd Littleton with Pathological, the podcast for the pastor theologian. Today on the podcast, we have a conversation with Morgan Guyton on his new book, How Jesus Saves the World from Us 12 Antidotes to Toxic Christianity. Morgan is a United Methodist elder who co directs the Nola Wesley United Methodist Campus Center with his wife, Cheryl. He blogs at Mercy Not Sacrifice on patheos.com, has contributed dozens of articles to Red Letter Christians. Huffington Post Religion, Think Christian, Ministry Matters, United Methodist Reporter, and Rethink Church. We have a really good, fun, and challenging conversation. We certainly didn't cover every uh, chapter in Morgan's book, but we did cover the first two that lay the groundwork and hopefully will create uh, an appetite or a curiosity where you'd run out and buy the book. If you find this podcast helpful, maybe you'd find it helpful for those who think Christianity is toxic, or maybe for those of you who have experienced toxicity in your own version of Christianity, and you'd like to know what Morgan's antidotes are. Some great suggestions, some practical illustrations, some personal uh, stories, and a real interest in seeing the world healed. With the good news of Jesus. So remember, after you're through listening, share the podcast. Uh, if you haven't already subscribed, you can do so on iTunes or Stitcher or your favorite podcatcher. If you um, would help us out by sharing the podcast, uh, that would help get word out about it as a resource. And then if you wouldn't mind sharing uh, a rating or review in iTunes, it takes just a little bit more. Uh, a five-star review is pretty easy. If you take the time to leave a review, just know that it won't show up immediately. It takes about 24 hours to go through the system. might have some things to wrap up after, uh, the podcast with, uh, Morgan. So stick around and, uh, we'll let you know some things to come. Now, here's my conversation with Morgan Guyton. You know, you'd like to think that maybe there's a place, um, among Christians where there is no drama, I just haven't found it yet.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: you know. Um, yeah, I don't think, um, you know, it's kind of like uh, in, you know, Methodism and Wesleyan thought, we talk about Christian perfection. Right. I think that, I think untoxic Christianity is kind of like Christian perfection, that it exists in theory.
0: You know? <laughs> uh, I get always that.
1: always going on. Right, we talk about going on to perfection, you know. I'm going on to Right. Untoxic Christianity, but I'm not there yet. Right.
0: So. I may I may edit this part in. I may just leave it out just for my own edification. Sure. So tell me the Southern Baptist story. Southern Baptist story. All right. Yeah, I I I um I remember you saying something about it and then of course I picked it up in the book. Right. And um I mean, that's my tribe. That's, that's, uh, cool. That's I grew up. That's, that's what I do.
1: Awesome. Yep. Well, yeah. So I grew up Southern Baptist and, um, and really received a lot of wonderful things from, um, from that upbringing. Um, I think the most important thing that Baptists, Sensibilities have to offer the world is the importance of authenticity mm-hmm. um, and the priesthood of the believer,
2: yeah.
1: and that's something that I continue to carry with me. Um, and I grew up in a moderate Southern Baptist family, um, and my my grandpa was a regent at Baylor University, and also uh, I can't remember what they're called—messengers or delegates or whatever—to the Texas Baptist General Convention, and. Um, I learned about Paige Patterson and Paul Pressler at about the age of three. Um, so I probably heard more about them than I heard about Jesus when I was like a, a preschooler. Um, and so, so I've kind of spent my life defining myself against fundamentalist Christianity. And it wasn't actually, wasn't a rebellion. It was, well, I mean, it was my whole family's rebellion, really. Um, and so I that's the interesting thing is it's not so much that I grew up in an environment that was oppressive or something like that and then rebelled against it I just carried the rebellion further perhaps um, than my uh, than my family did and, and we've just been on a journey really together um, and trying to understand what um, you know what the gospel is really about and um, and just why, um, you know, how did how did Christianity just get so dadgum ugly, right. <laughs> you know, over the last however many decades and in trying to return to the beauty that's there and it's still there in so many places in the church. Um, but unfortunately, it gets sidelined by the loudest, meanest voices among us.
0: Yeah, I mean, I totally resonate with all of that in in the sense that um, I think um, I was a little bit older when I heard of those folks Uh, but the um, and I, I didn't grow up in a moderate Baptist home, I grew up in a very conservative Baptist home and Baptist church and that sort of thing but safe to say that at some point a personal kind of moment was had where it was like there's got to be something nicer than all of that. Mm, yeah. And uh, I had a pretty good mentor that it kind of was um, instrumental to kind of think through that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that was there was probably a turn there and then it just kind of progressed over the years.
1: Yeah. And it's very interesting in my journey. I feel like every step of the way there have been uh, just loving adults and, um, and mentors who have encouraged me to think critically about my faith. Um, and, and I think the, really the, um, my father, both my, um, well, I think about my dad and my mom and my grandpa are kind of the three main adults who, you know, older figures who, who were influential on me in the beginning. Um, and, but really, I mean, my youth pastor was a great guy. Uh, my senior high Sunday school teacher, um, and and really it was just when I was in college, I kind of fell in with uh, people that were a little more fundamentalist. Um, I had uh, gotten part joined the intervarsity Christian Fellowship, and um, and it was very connected with uh, with the Calvinists, um, the, the um, Presbyterian Church of America over at. Um, University of Virginia where I was going and I I just I had had never heard I mean I don't think I'd ever heard of Calvinism before before I went to college and so you know there were all these just debates about you know predestination it just wasn't even on my my radar screen at all and um, and finally it just got to the point where yeah where I just basically said you know there really has to be a better gospel than this Um, and and I just I ran away from that um, for a while. So um, you went to uh,
0: UVA, and um, you're you're a college student minister at Tulane. Fill in mm-hmm. fill in the gap there. So you UVA, and then and then and then what? So you you ran because I think this actually fits the whole idea of. Um, you know your subtitle: 12 Antidotes to Toxic Christianity." So you found right. you found a um, an, <clears throat> a need for a, a better gospel, a better story of, of mm. uh, God in the world, and so you 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 left in search of, or in yeah. in, in running from, or so what? What'd you right. do?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, and it it depends on which point in my life I'm telling the story um, as to whether. Uh, Yeah, whether I was searching for something or running away from something, whether I was the prodigal son or the Apostle Paul, I don't know. Um, But basically, I discovered right out of college, I I moved to Washington, D.C., actually uh, joined the Lutheran Volunteer Corps um, because they had a a program where you could live in an intentional community, and I was terrified of living in a big city by myself and not knowing anybody, and so I... So I looked for ways of living in community. And in the Lutheran Volunteer Corps, I discovered this thing called social justice Mm. um, that I'd never heard of before. Because growing up, what I understood justice to mean was that's what happens when God um, burns you in hell forever um, because there's no mercy. And so we don't want justice. We want mercy. Um, And so this idea that justice could be a positive thing, that that was so strange. And there were these Christians, you know, who were... Reading liberation theology and talking about how um, their faith compelled them to to be in the streets and to support immigrant rights, and um, there was a vigil that we went to at the School of Americas, what was then called the School of Americas, a place that had trained the the death squads in Central America um, at, at Fort Benning, Georgia. And, um, again, yeah, it was just a whole new world that I was exposed to. And, um, and so as part of my immersion in that world, so I actually worked for a social justice NGO called the Nicaragua Network that was originally founded in the 80s um, to support the Sandinistas. And um, I did that for uh, about a year and a half, and then I moved up to Toledo, Ohio, where I worked for the Farm Labor Organizing Committee. Uh, which is a farm worker union um, that organizes both in Ohio and North Carolina and it was while I was in Toledo um, I was living in a in a very interesting situation um, it was kind of this artist colony I don't know that there's anything really like it um, it's certainly not anywhere else in the Midwest um, where it was basically dirt cheap rent and um, and and we lived in this. It was it was the building was a former convent, um, an Ursuline convent that had been converted into this kind of dilapidated artist residence place. And so, because I wrote poetry, um, you know, I applied to get in there, and and I was paying like two hundred dollars a month for rent or something ridiculously cheap like that. And it was a very toxic living environment. Um, there was lots of self medication and. Haphazard intimacies that were taking place um, between us. And so I was kind of, uh, and, and at the time I wasn't really going to church. Uh, and so I decided that I was going to try to find the closest church uh, somewhere that I could walk to. And I walked a couple blocks um, to the north and found Central Avenue United Methodist Church. And, um, and one of the things that I discovered as soon as I walked in the room was that I was one of maybe four or five straight people who were there. Um, And it was a congregation that was mostly gay people, which was another tremendous surprise. I didn't know that there were any gay people who were Christian. I I, I thought that, you know, the two were oxymoronic or something. Um, But in that space, it was really um, amazing how, in that space of people who had been rejected by the church, um, and almost all of them had a story of how they had been involved in some other church and had gotten kicked out. Basically, um, they accepted me unconditionally, showed me grace, and we we read a um, we did a book study together um, on Henry Nowen's Life of the Beloved. And in that book study, I discovered this concept of becoming God's beloved. This idea that our quest in life, our spiritual quest, is to discover God's love for us and um, and really uh, and really embrace that love and surrender to that love, and that basically sin is what happens when we don't realize how much God loves us, and so it's a completely different framework for understanding the relationship between my sin. And heaven and hell and salvation and, and everything else. And so a lot of what has happened since then in my journey has been working out the implications of a a very different way of framing the gospel as a, a journey of becoming God's beloved. And, um, and that's basically, that's basically the journey I've been on since 2002. That was, that was 2002. And so, um, and so I've, yeah, everything that I've discovered um, since then has really been a product of being accepted by Christians who had been rejected. Hmm. Um, and and, and that, was, that was the core.
0: Yeah, I picked up, uh, you know, a lot of and uh, a lot of Merton mm, uh, yes. along the way. And uh, those are always, um, in my estimation, healthy antidotes. Yeah. to some of what you describe growing up with right um i i i resonate uh, with that, maybe that gets us into a, a couple of things about the book that <clears throat> while it'd be great to go you know maybe chapter by chapter, we need to leave something for someone to read, you know yeah, and so um i I thought that that maybe what um we' do because we're just we're just rolling this is working, so we're just, just rolling here. And so, in talking about how Jesus saves the world from us, um, I wanted to, to, maybe we could pick up from right there, because you lay some important groundwork at the beginning. Um, so, when you are working out this understanding of discovering that you're loved, or you're the beloved, and it, it led you to uh, re, I don't know if it's probably not the way to really say it, but it's as simple as I know. It, it led you to reinterpret the scene in the garden mm, in a particular yes. way right. that for many people will, will sound a bit um, um, psychological. Mm. Um, and And so maybe in an attempt to both evoke curiosity and then at the same time to quash any idea that, Someone just read some self-help book somewhere and decided to, you know, Uh. turn it into something. Um, Let's talk about that story because there there are two things that that I, I observed that I think are really, really important. And I think they are actually ongoing disciplines that all of us who... Uh, engage faith seriously and critically. Uh, have to uh, keep an eye on, and we—that is—we we always need to work on some kind of analysis. So, right. you're actually doing a cultural analysis of the church, and and then um, you're actually doing a hermeneutics of sort uh, that that kind of grows out of that. And 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 while my podcast is for the pastor, theologian, I really am also targeting lay people who are interested in the intersections of. You know what pastoral life looks like, or the life of mm-hmm. being being uh, shepherded or shepherding others, and then um, the whole theological project or structures that kind of come, whether they're exposed as weak or limited, or they're offered as, "Hey, here's a new possibility," which mm-hmm. I think is what you do, and and so really throughout, uh, you do some reinterpreting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I don't want anybody to think that, that, um, you know, Morgan, you're, uh, like this hermeneutical guru, um, (laughs) but that there is a different lens. And I'm wondering if we could jump off and say that you just described your lens, that what happened in that community in Toledo set you at a different vantage point than the three-year-old listening to conversations about Pressler and Patterson and, Baptist mm. politics in Texas mm. and so as as you move around say the circumference of the gospel and you 're looking in your your lens shifted. You and I both were right. glasses, and so it 's one or two, three or four you know right, you're trying right. to get a different a different take and as you 've moved around from a different vantage point you you read some of these familiar passages in in ways that um, you know, they're not outlandish. They're just different.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So um, specifically the Garden of Eden, I just I just think it's so important um, for us to see the nakedness that is the heart of the story. You know, we've kind of gone to the Garden of Eden with um, one of the things I said in my book. It's kind of like we when you watch a movie in the with commentary mode where the um you know, the movie producer is is yakking in the background. And we, whenever we read the Garden of Eden story, um, particularly as Protestants, we are, well, really Western Catholics too. Um, we're reading it with the Augustinian commentary going through our head as we're looking at it. Um, and so the focal point in the Augustinian commentary, which is based on Paul's use of the story in Romans 6 and a mistranslation by Jerome, Um is that the whole thing hinges on disobedience. And that that is the focal point of the story, that Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and that we are suffering the punishment of that disobedience. But what really struck me when I looked at the story with fresh eyes, I noticed in Genesis 2 that it says, "...the man and the wife were naked, and they were not ashamed." And then the serpent tricks them into eating the fruit. He says, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, knowing good from evil. Well, it says their eyes were opened and they saw that they were naked and they were ashamed. And they go and they hide in the bushes. And God says to Adam, why are you hiding from me? Who told you that you were naked? You know, and it's so there is so much in that story about shame. And about having this awareness of yourself, um, a, a, a self-consciousness um, that causes you to hide from God and to hide behind a mask. And so I really think particularly in our, um, in our cultural moment, we the, the chapter title of, of the first chapter where I deal with this is Worship Not Performance. And we are living in a world where everyone is performing for each other, um, particularly in social media, where you have this kind of avatar that you're presenting to people who don't see how you really live. And so you try to, you know, take a selfie with the best lighting possible, you know, and um, and present, you know, the best possible packaging of yourself to the world. And, um, and I particularly see this acutely in the campus um, college environment that I'm serving in, where everyone is packaging themselves for other people, and which is what we do when we don't live under grace. Hmm. It's what we do when we don't know that we are loved by God and we don't have that as the foundation um, for our identity. There's a line from, um, I can't remember which psalm, um, it is, but I came across it in the lectionary reading for Lent, and I've been repeating it to myself as a prayer ever since then. It says, let your steadfast love become my comfort. Hmm. Um, and I just think so much of this is about that, is about residing in the grace of God so that we can stop performing for each other. Mm-hmm. And what, what gets toxic in, um, in the church is when instead of being saved from our shame and from our need to hide behind bushes, to hide behind mass, we wear all kinds of masks. You know, and we have all kinds of hallelujah competitions with the people around us. You know, who can raise their hands higher than the person next to them? Who can close their eyes more emphatically, you know, when they're singing the praise song? And who can say Jesus with the most earnestness? You know, that's... We're performing. So much of it is performing. And, and, and the problem is that we have this idea um, that if I'm performing for God, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm just not supposed to be performing for other people. Well, actually, no. We, we, God wants to save us from performing for Him. God just wants us to know that we're loved. I mean, He, he wants to delight in the beauty and the excellence with which we. Talk about him with which we praise him He wants to delight in that as our father But um, But to think that God is standing over Us like some you know American Idol judge You know evaluating whether we're saying You know whether our doctrine is Pristinely perfect you know Whether our prayers are um, Emphatic and heartfelt Enough that's That I mean it's like the whole Church is walking on eggshells
0: Yeah, do you you think that um, one of the ways it gets kind of lived out in communities, um, churches, um, is that shame actually becomes an an instrument of the organization. Mm Mm-hmm. And and that's how the toxicity gets kind of instantiated or becomes embedded. And until not just individuals kind of, you know, move out from under that Weight uh, that you describe, but that whole the whole system has got to move out from under that sort of kind of oppressive and oppressing sort of environment.
1: Yeah, and that and that's the kind of the really strange thing that um, that I've been discovering is that you know growing up, I had drilled into my head that um, the only way to stay faithful as a disciple is to have this accountability group where you know where it was really rigorous and you get interrogated and you you know, have all this kind of pressure on you to not, to not slip, you know, because you're going to have to confess it to people and it's going to be really embarrassing. And, and actually the times when I have grown the most spiritually and received the most liberation from my idols and my sin has been when I've been in a space where there wasn't that kind of pressure, where I was actually, it's, it's, it's paradoxical, but self-acceptance is actually a more fertile ground on which sanctification that can occur than self-hatred. Yes. Um, you know, and, and I always thought that, you know, growing up, well, if I hate myself enough after I sin, then that's good enough. Right. You know, and, 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 and that's how you stay trapped in that cycle of, um, oh gosh, I did it again, Lord. I am so sorry. I'm such a despicable person. You know, it's actually when we stop saying I'm a despicable person that then we say, you know, I really don't have to look at that porn or whatever it is, you know, that, that we're struggling with. You know, I really I'm I'm better than that because God loves me, you know, and, and God and God can heal me. And I'm not I'm not this despicable worm who, who does these horrible things, you know, in, in, in private because I'm you know, so anxious and ashamed all the time. And, um, so that's, I think, and again, that it all kind of started out from being in this church of people who had been rejected by the church, who taught me how to love myself. Um, which, you know, honestly, at the time I thought that loving myself was basically a heresy.
0: Oh, sure. I, I, I and it's always kind of marveled as I've came into that same discovery along the way is, is it is we clip off love your neighbor as yourself. Right. We, you know, it's the as yourself part, we clip off. It's it's right. love your neighbor. And we don't recognize the way that we view ourselves as really what opens us up if, to the possibilities of, what, of how we could love or engage another person. So if right. I'm always self-loathing, then I'm always going to lo- uh, loathe in the other person the very things I'm loathing about myself. Right. There's no way to love there. And 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 you've done, you know, y- you mentioned early on that when we understand that we've been loved, it it liberates us from shame. Mm-hmm. Um. <clears throat> there's got to be a triangulation. It seems to me that fear is part of that triangle mm-hmm. because you know. Uh, when I understand I'm completely loved, the scripture you know reports uh, 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 it casts out or casts off fear. Mm-hmm. Well, shame is that fear thing. I mean, right. I, I'm fear. I fear being shamed or ashamed. So I fear mm-hmm. someone shaming me, or I feel being ashamed of myself. And and in that triangulating, it, it it's a paralysis. It, it right. and if love is shielded, or if love's not even introduced into the equation, then. And there's, there's this, like you just said, there's constant paralysis as to how do I move and how do I engage and how could I ever kind of really participate in community in any way?
1: Well, of course, there's a paradox with the word fear, because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, even though perfect love drives out fear. Of course, it's two different understandings of fear. Sure. Um, you know, the third servant in the parable of talents, the reason that he hid his money in the ground was he said to his master, I was afraid of you, mm-hmm. um, and that and that's precisely what happens when we're afraid of God. But there's a totally different phenomenon. You know, we see in Acts nine thirty one when it talks about the church being filled with confidence in the Holy, the sphere of the Lord, and the confidence of the Holy Spirit, and they, and they're growing explosively. And the only way that I've come to understand that is that when I actually live in trust of God's love. Um, the power of God is going to be overwhelming to me. Mm-hmm. That that fear of the Lord—that's a positive thing. It's yeah, it's it's overwhelming. What God is actually doing when I'm able to see the presence of God at work, um, but I'm actually not able to face that reality as long as I'm ashamed, as long as I'm hiding in the bushes, as long as I have the the the, the negative kind of fear. Sure. You know, and so to to step out. Um, with confidence into the presence of God, you know, like we see in, um, in Hebrews, it talks about, you know, now that that's the whole purpose of atonement is to be able to approach God with confidence, you know, because I have been, you know, covered by the blood of the lamb, you know, I can go into the temple with, with absolute confidence and face God. Mm -hmm. Um, and doing that, I'm going to be overwhelmed by the presence of God. Um, but I know that he loves me. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I really appreciated your uh, your opening illustration about the boys,
2: mm.
0: the dancing when the music yeah. came, you know, yeah. I, I, I think I messaged you and said, hey, I had to channel you in and in a, in a, in a message you know, my I've got two older grand boys. I say older. I mm. got three grand boys. Two of them are older than the youngest, but that means they're four and five yep. and they love to move. I mean, yeah. those little bodies are always in motion, you know, and so right. they'll stand down by me on Sunday morning sometimes, and they will be getting into the music. Their little oh, feet yeah. move, their arms move, they swing, they, they do things. I don't even know where they got them. I have to talk to their parents right. and find out where that stuff came from, you know. But, but that that you described a certain innocence in, right. in, in that. You were communicating that no one yet had taught me what mm-hmm. I should be ashamed of.
2: Mm.
0: Yes. And and so that's another angle wherein right. that whole issue of toxicity is is slow and subtle. It it it's like it's like being in a room of asbestos and not knowing it and right. only until you you know you're diagnosed stage 4 did you know that for all that that time the toxicity in the room has been right. slowly eating away at you. And so how how do you how do you bridge or how do you suggest bridging uh, the realities that we often do make the choice or or we don't recognize the way god loves us which actually at some point undermines our innocence mm-hmm. leads us to kind of then participate in the very toxic structures that right. end up being so damaging
1: well i really think that so much of it comes from this oppressive need to be right Hmm. Um, and the feeling that I'm supposed to be right and that I have to make sure that everyone knows that I'm right and that I'm going to argue with people. Um, I'm not going to, you know, cede any ground in any kind of, you know, theological argument because I have to stand up for, you know, what's correct. And, And I think that, so we really, it really comes back to, you know, just justification by faith. What does that really mean? Um, and, and the way that I've come to understand what that means, that means justification by faith means that I stop justifying myself. Mm. And that if I'm in a conversation with somebody and they're really passionate and they're saying something that I think is completely wrong, um, I can respond to that with grace.
2: Mm.
1: You know, and I can, um, and I can discern whether um, whether it's appropriate for me to, you know, to push back in some kind of way gently, um, you know, but, but, but for me to respond, not because I need to be right, um, but for the sake of my communion with the other person, my relationship with the other person. Um, and, and so I think when we're liberated from that need to be right, that, it's just like, that's when this, you know, the, 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 just the swollen, um, you know, environment of toxicity, like the air just kind of, you know, just Mm -hmm. seeps out when, um, when we're, when we're liberated, when we're actually able to say that we're wrong, when we're actually able to apologize to other people, when we're able to let other people be wrong and, um, and not feel like we have to correct it. um, And so when you have, uh, you know, an environment where, um, you know, it's like Paul talks about trying to outdo one another in, in grace,
2: Hmm. you know,
1: that, um, if, if that's what we're trying to do rather than trying to outdo one another with correctness, then, you know, then I think the, uh, you know, just the, the asbestos just kind of goes away, um, you know, it, humility, wow, it's just such, such an important thing. And especially for, for leaders, you know, to, um, to be able to walk in humility and, um, you know, and depending on your level with relationship with other people to help other people discover the gift of humility too, in whatever way that, that happens. Sure.
0: You know, that, that really gets to one of the other things that, um, I think Uh, pretty foundational. Um, and that is, is, so if, if we're talking about humility and and then we're talking about, you know, uh, kind of killing this need to be right. Um, it, it then comes to one of your other points about mercy, Mm, you know, because we, you know, in in my experience, uh, Mm -hmm. in, in the days of, you know, battling for this position or that position in ecclesiastical settings, mm. um, it, it seemed as though someone would take up the position that they've got to defend God. You know, God right. needs God somehow needs defending. He's not really capable of handling things without me jumping in, and mm. and and no matter how angry, vitriolic, acerbic I am, and all that I say, somehow it's justified because I'm, after all, defending God. Right. When what really gets exposed, I'm really defending myself, because if I find out that I'm wrong, then everything just falls apart, and I got to start right. all over again. I can't do that kind of thing. It's just too much energy. But you you make this point repeatedly. Mercy is messy. Right. And And do you would it would be safe to say that mercy well practiced in those kinds of settings actually turns some very difficult times into redemptive times
1: mm. yeah definitely um you know in it's yeah it's um and and it doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt oh right uh, you know when you when you when you have to live you know I've got these images flashing in my head of all the various difficult people I've had to deal with in ministry, uh, you know, and and, and knowing that I was a difficult person to them um, at the same time. Um, But I just think that the greatest blessings that I've received have happened when I really came to the point where I had to say to God, I do not know what I'm doing, Yeah please help because I am completely lost, you know, and I've had some situations with parishioners when I was serving in in a local church and with um, students where, um, and I've had situations where I've, I've made some pretty bad mistakes and I've had to ask for mercy. Hmm. And, 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 what's, what's the, the richest thing is when you have to ask for mercy from someone who. Is being completely toxic and completely mm. they need your mercy and they don't recognize it. But you did something you screwed up and you have to ask them for mercy. Right. And um, and, and and that experience of, of having to completely humiliate yourself like that is actually very sanctifying. You know, it, it sucks at the time. It's just humiliating. But um, but it really sets you free. Um, Because when you have this, when you're in this place where you have to preserve your authority at all costs by, um, you know, being infallible and pretending or pretending to be infallible, it's just, you're not going to grow in that, in that, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're straitjacketed like that. Um, And so I've just found that the most growth has happened when, when I have had to admit that I don't
0: know what I'm doing. Yeah, and I, that fits so well with, with what you do in that, um, I think it's the second chapter um, on, uh, on mercy, where you're contrasting um, mercy and sacrifice. Mm. I, I don't desire sacrifice, but I desire mercy. Right. And you do a fantastic job of, I think, keying in on what we talked about earlier, how performance is related to our sacrifice. In other words, you know, to perform the way we do uh, and put on our masks, I think is how you described it. Mm. And we we do these performance things. um, Internally, we're justifying those those masks by what we're sacrificing, what we're giving up, what we... Mm. And all because of some higher... uh, you know, moral, or some higher yeah. goal, or some higher value.
1: For God's glory.
0: That's exactly right, for, for God's, God's glory. Always, always, always for God's glory. And yet you really point out how the way we talk about sacrifice actually has very little to do with a relationship with the other person. It really right. is kind of a, a self-celebratory kind of event. Right.
1: Well, yeah. And, and, and I think that it's also very important to understand that, you know, um, I don't want there to be any kind of subtext here that we're talking, you know, that this book is about like bashing, you know, right wing people as opposed to left wing people or sure. something like that. They're, they're, they're all on every side of every ideological question. There are all kinds of versions of toxicity and particularly, um, In, um, in, you know, on team social justice, there's a whole lot of this kind of exhibitionist sacrifice of, you know, well, I'm the white guy who gets it, you know, I'm, you know, I, I'm going to, um, you know, make these, um, make these sacrifices, um, you know, so that you can see, um, what an enlightened, uh, multicultural person I am, you know, and, um, You know, and it's like um, we, you know, we have this whole volunteerism, you know, kind of industry where you, um, you know, you get the selfie with the brown child, you know, and it it's just self-justification is always lurking behind every corner. Mm. You know, there's always Mm. a way in which we can turn um, an act of mercy, turn something that could be really beautiful and could really spread the love of God into a, a toxic means of, um, you know, patting ourselves on the back. And, um, and, and 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 the truth is we can do good in the world that actually helps other people and be miserable doing it because we're concerned about whether other people notice that we're doing it. Right. And so sometimes the, the most healing thing that can happen is when we really, really um, – just throw ourselves into, um, you know, into some kind of volunteer work, and and nobody knows notices, and um, and and, and, th- and things happen that are beautiful, but we don't get any credit, um, and that, that can be the most healing thing. I mean, it's 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 a kind of um, awful kind of healing, but it but it can actually really be helpful to us when um, we don't get credit um, for helping other people.
0: Oh. I, that's and that's perfect and, and i i appreciate you pointing out that um i didn't take your book as a slight toward one particular uh segment of the christian right. tree i took it that all of these things actually show up a bit everywhere i mean because right. because right. it is a uh, toxic christianity it's not like Toxic right wing Christianity or toxic left wing Christianity. It's just toxic Christianity because all of these are pervasive. Right. You know, shame is pervasive. It doesn't matter what side of the aisle you happen to sit on, and the need for mercy is pervasive. It doesn't matter what ideology you hold. And that, I think that's instrumental because then when you talk about um, how love works, it subverts all those no matter Mm -hmm. where. So, you know, I know a lot of people. I've heard me on on the podcast talk about um, or using maybe subversion or subversive. But I really think that that's kind of what happens. It's not this um, hammer uh, and nail sort of thing that happens. It it really is when you kind of learn that love is always lurking, God's always luring in love, and you find out (laughs) you're the object of that love, then it tends to kind of undermine all those structures that create, whether it's... uh, what keeps you safe in your identity, or what keeps you kind of well positioned in your uh, social circle, or how mm. you envision yourself in sort of some sort of economic uh, strata, or it, it doesn't right. matter. It really kind of rends all of those because really, what's at heart is is not those ways we kind of structure the social self, but really how it is we understand God has loved us, mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, and so I think you've done a, you've done a great job. I didn't. I just want to kind of reiterate that in case someone might be thinking, well, these two guys got on here and all they're doing is bashing a particular uh, variety. You no, know, this is actually universal. It's it's right. not it's not particular. We're not particularizing it into one segment, but it, it's a universal experience. Um, there are just as many people who write books and come out of um, uh, different contexts than you and I may have, Right. who really may not have been able to kind of capture what you have here, but have nonetheless had the same experience.
1: Yeah. And I think that the, uh, really the, the important underlying theme I would say that, that is, you know, woven through all of the chapters is that God wants us to stop trying to prove ourselves Hmm. You know, and we talk about um, you know works righteousness, and, and I don't you know I don't know about you, but for me in a Baptist setting, my gosh, I got plenty of that. You know, justification is by faith, not by works. Justification is by faith, not by works. But the thing I think that um, what we don't recognize is that um, doctrine can become a work hmm. that justifies. And um, you know, usually when we're thinking about works righteousness, we're thinking about yeah, those Catholics or those whoever you know, the, right. those other Christians who think that their good deeds are going to get them into heaven. Well, you know, anytime, and particularly in a in a cultural context where so much of our existence is basically reduced to our words, mm-hmm. you know, that we these mm-hmm. these status updates that mm-hmm. we put online, and um, speaking correctly is not that doesn't justify us
2: right
1: it's god's grace that justifies us you know and um and gosh um i am still trapped you know in this in this world world of you know feeling like i have to speak a certain way that i have to posture a certain way in order to to show people that i'm legit you know that i'm orthodox and i mean that Within, um, within both the, the kind of secular progressive world, within the evangelical Christian world, because I kind of, I, I, I end up um, straddling a lot of different categories, um, you know, but um, it's, um, the, the more that we can trust that we are loved and accepted and stop trying to prove ourselves... Um, the more that God's going to be able to do the work on our character that needs to be done.
0: Uh, absolutely! And, and you came to mind. I, I, you, you quoted uh, Keller at, at one point, and mm, I remember yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember a piece I either read or heard in a in a video where Keller made a great point to say that one of our problems today is the the problem of social knowledge, and that is we decide where we want to be on the spectrum, and so in order to kind of be accepted on that spectrum, we go out and learn all we can about that particular place on the spectrum. Right. And so we adopt this knowledge for social... social uh, social positioning or repositioning so maybe we're looking to change how people perceive us or how they look at us and we really have envisioned no I want to be like Morgan and so I'm going to find out what those things are that make him tick what those things are important that he knows I want to know the idioms that he's always using and then I'll go employ those and then uh, I may unwittingly leave behind some pretty important things Right. You know, um, and, and I think that when, when we stop um, trying to prove ourselves and prove our worth and prove our value but embrace the fact that we are valued and loved is, is monumental. Mm-hmm. Um, and for, uh, uh, evidently, guys like us who uh, grew up where the trap has always been proving and performing, mm-hmm. achieving and accomplishing, that is an ongoing conversion experience. Exactly. Yeah. It, it, th- it doesn't. It doesn't just go away because I read a Nowlin book and I got enthralled with Merton. I mean, we want to make sure people know that.
1: Right. And I think that's that's one of the things that um, that I think is really important. Um, and within my Wesleyan um, theological framework, um, you know, now being United Methodists, uh, coming from John Wesley. Um, You know, a lot of people talk about justification being the sort of initial event and sanctification being the lifelong process. I actually think it's more helpful to think of justification and sanctification as both processes um, because I always need to surrender more um, so that I can be uh, more sanctified and grow more perfect in my love you know, and, and they're, they're really two different, two different processes. I mean, we're talking, you know, metaphorically, so, sure. you could, you know, allocate things in a different way. But, um, but I, I feel like I'm still letting go of my self-justification and, and, and it flares up in me. Um, you know, every day I'll have, I'll have a bad moment, you know, when, um, you know, when I'm just filled with, with this kind of righteous zeal and anger at what somebody else has said. And I think that I'm the one who's supposed to correct them, you know? And, and then I look back on it, I'm like, gosh, why did I do it again? Hmm. You know?
2: Hmm.
1: And I guess the way that I've come to understand, um, you know, really just, uh, soteriology and eschatology is that, I really feel like hell because hell is separation from God. And I, hell is, I, I would almost say that hell is self-justification. Mm. Hell is mm. when I'm in this mm. enclosed space wow. where I am completely aloof to the mercy of God because I am doing everything just fine, thank you very much, and I am the God of my own universe. Mm. Whereas heaven is what I experience when I accept the love of God, you know, and let the love of God just completely infiltrate me Mm -hmm. um, and completely pass through me and, um, and just become one with it Mm -hmm. um, so that I can be in the community of people who have formed around this love um, and who are, you know, Paul talks about, you know, says that we have been hidden together with Christ. Mm -hmm. And, and that's what I really, um, that's, it kind of put an image in my head I don't know if you're familiar with uh, C.S. Lewis's text, The Great Divorce But um, I almost feel like You know, so in, in, in The Great Divorce, hell is this little Speck of, of, um, of Existence, this kind of Microscopic and this giant world Of, um, that, that is heaven And so people are tra- are Transported from Hell to heaven to see, you know As part of the story I almost feel like I want to do the reverse of that with my metaphor Mm. um, for it. I feel like hell is this big, awful, wide open space where people trample each other. Um, And heaven is the secret hidden place
2: Mm.
1: where there's mercy. That that people who have had their eyes opened to God, you know, who have had their hearts purified so they can see God, to talk in the language of the Beatitudes – they're able to live in this other reality called the kingdom mm. you know where we are not trampled with the the, the the world that that is you know that is you know suffering from this um, abject loneliness mm-hmm. of, um, of, of thinking that you know myself is the center of the universe right
2: Wow
0: that's good stuff, man. Well, I'm I'm hoping that um <clears throat> those who listen in uh will pick up a copy of How Jesus Saves the World from Us, Twelve Antidotes to Toxic Christianity by Morgan Is it Guyton? Guyton, uh huh. Okay, want to make sure I got that right. And um is there anything um else that you you think maybe would be an enticement to um, maybe that we didn't cover, maybe one mm-hmm. thing that you thought, hey, you know, this might be really worth someone really kind of paying, because there's a lot we left. We left a lot right. on the table with related to the book. Um, but there might be something that really, if you said, boy, my, one of my favorite parts.
1: Yeah. What I would say, one of the, um, one of the shifts that I am hoping that we can make Um, As a church And particularly within my kind of Evangelical Christian tribe Is a shift Towards uh, More ascetic uh, Mm. Mystical practice Mm. And um, I I talk about this in my chapter um, Empty not clean Mm -hmm. Um, That I need to be engaging In spiritual practices Of fasting and prayer That empty my heart so that I can be, so that my thirst for God can be awakened. Hmm. Um, and I think that too often we we live in this kind of environment of moral legalism and sin management where we think that the thing to do about sin is just to kind of barricade ourselves against it. And what I want to argue, what I, what I think I've experienced in my life is that actually if I pursue God, the way that the psalmist pursued God in, in Psalm 42, that's kind of like my my life story, or that's what I want to be my life story, is, is chasing after God like the psalmist who's like a deer searching for water. Um, the more that I'm thirsty for God, the less that I'm thirsty for sin. Mm-hmm. And so and so engaging in practices like, like fasting, um, where I am cultivating my thirst for God, that's actually more um, productive. And I, I hate the word productive, but, but I, I don't know a better word, but yeah. that's more productive than, you know, than, than to try to, um, you know, you know, just barricade myself against temptation hmm. or something. And so I think we need to move from moral legalism to ascetic mysticism.
0: Hmm. Good, good. Well, I hope that entices a number of people to pick that up and, and check it out, and not just for uh, you know caution there. You know caution. I, I don't think anyone ought to pick up a book to, to read it and go, oh, he's right or he's wrong. Right. I think we read books to see in what ways, in that moment, they move us um, further in um, our own understanding of uh, God's love for us, God's love through us, right. and how we participate in in the kingdom uh, of God. So yeah. I'm. I, I i appreciate your book um i, I look forward to maybe getting other opportunities to chat with you I, I'm, yeah. I'm a big fan of crackers and grape juice i yeah. plug that as often as i get it oh, so thank you if you guys uh out there listening haven't uh checked out uh the crackers and grape juice podcast uh morgan and tear hardy and jason Michelli put that one together and uh it's worth subscribing to and listening and so, uh, so do that's another place. And and in the in the show notes, I'll uh, um, put some notes in there how to how to connect with Morgan and and mm-hmm. how to follow him and track him. And and uh, that way you can kind of keep up with his thoughts and ideas and and maybe uh, join that journey of detoxification and encouraging the use of these antidotes. Amen. Morgan, thanks, man. I certainly appreciate the time you've given me. Look awesome. forward look forward to it again
1: sometime. Yeah, thank you, brother. All right.
0: As always, thanks for listening, and again, we'll have uh, some links to how to follow and keep up with Morgan. We'll have a link to his book, uh, as well as uh, a link to the podcast that he is part of. Uh, You've probably seen me advertise it. I believe it's in the sidebar on the website, but uh, he's one of the three fellows doing crackers and grape juice. He, Tear Hardy, and Jason Michelli. And so I, I'd recommend that. Uh, I, I'd recommend their podcasts. Uh, there are a lot of good things going on over there. And uh, down the line, I'm looking at uh, interviewing a, a Tad Delay and um, Philip Nation, uh, among others. And we'll just keep uh, opportunities open. If you have a suggestion for someone that uh, you think would be good for the Pathological Podcast and uh, be sure to shoot me an email and that'd be great. The uh other thing what you to know is is um uh, uh R- pathological is a an affiliate podcast with Roundtable Media Group. We have uh several uh affiliate podcasts as well as some podcasts that we uh host over there. You can find us at roundtablemediagroup.com if you'd like to advertise across uh, our uh, podcast, and uh, you could send me an email at todd at com. Uh, we just added uh, the podcast of my friend Alan Cross. The title of his podcast will be When Heaven and Earth Collide. He's got 20 or 30 interviews in the bag, and they'll all be good. Alan explores the intersection of Southern American Christianity and cultural uh, uh, pieces that um, are really ripe for Uh, not just investigation, but uh, uh, positions that uh, help the church uh, participate in uh, bringing hope and healing. So he tackles uh, subjects like immigration and and racism, among others. So uh, you might check that out. Again, that's at roundtablemediagroup.com. We'll have his page up and posted. You can find him in iTunes as well. So until next time. Um, appreciate you uh, joining me here, Path theological, the podcast for the pod, for the pastoral theologian. Uh, obviously, you can tell I'm not quite on my game, been dealing with a little summer cold. Appreciate your patience, and uh, as always, until next time, peace.